John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is good. Thank you that he is good because he lays down his life for us. May we prove to be one of his sheep as we hear his voice. And we ask that in his name. Amen. We are looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 5 today. And Jeff is going to be reading verse. <coughs> so looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 5 to 31. If you're using a Bible on the table in front of you, it's page 912. And we're cutting into the passage following the um, healing of the lame man and the arrest of Peter and John. So Acts chapter 4, verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, Rulers of the people and elders, if you are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is none other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. 
Jeff, thanks for reading to us. So the question that we are going to be considering this lunchtime is, how do we make sense of rejection? I mean, last week we were reminded that the offer of the gospel, what's an offer is God himself, re-entry into his presence, a relationship with him. It's the best offer in the world. But more often than not, when we share the gospel with someone, uh, the outcome is usually, is usually rejection. I've been speaking with some of you guys over the past week, I caught up with some of you guys over coffee, and you shared that the fear of rejection is the hardest bit. And it's really hard, isn't it, when you share the gospel with someone? I mean, I face rejection many times, and it can be really hard to stomach. So let me ask, how do we make sense of rejection? But you see, not only do we face rejection at home or at work, more surprisingly, we face rejection often by the religious establishments. I mean, the very people who were meant to uphold the truth. Uh, Let me show you a story. A friend of mine back home, he used to work for a Christian union in a university. There was one occasion when his employer, the organization of the Christian union, uh, they brought him up, they hauled him up, and they gave him a document to sign. And in the document, it stipulated that he was not allowed to correct any wrong doctrine because he would breach the inclusivity policy of the organization. I mean, last week we saw that the gospel, it's inherently corrective. Uh, there's repentance. You need to turn back from your sin. And for this friend of mine, if he wanted to uphold the truth of the gospel, um, he was forced to leave his job. And, and he did. So he didn't sign a document and he was forced to leave. And the truth is, I don't claim to be an expert of what's going on here in the UK, but I hear that in some areas of the church, uh, it can be pretty similar. Like religious establishments are really keen to promote the acceptable parts of the gospel, and that's understandably so. But you see, the gospel also calls people to, to repent, to turn back from sin. And so when it comes to the issue of repentance, many religious establishments, they, they shy away from saying that. And let me ask her, how does it feel when you hear and see religious establishments in opposition? Uh, it really makes you question if you're on the right side. And if you're not a Christian with us here today, um, I want to say that you're very welcome. And admittedly, this question is a bit of a funny one for you to be thinking about. But perhaps you considered Christianity before and rejection by people or the religious establishment is the thing that is stopping you. But for what it's worth, do listen in and consider what the Bible says about this question. We've been looking at the book of Acts and we've explored that Acts was written by Luke, our author, and the original reader of Acts was this man called Theophilus, and you see his name in chapter 1, verse 1. And the question of rejection was a hugely relevant question for Theophilus. You see, it wasn't any religious establishment that was rejecting Jesus. It was the religious establishment. It was the Jewish leaders, the people who were meant to point to the Messiah that was rejecting him. Last, last week, you remember, we flipped back to Isaiah chapter 35. It was page 595 of our Bibles. These Jewish leaders... 
they memorized the book of Isaiah in Hebrew. Their lives revolved around studying the law. And of all the people, they should know. And if they are rejecting the Messiah, for Theophilus, it was deeply, deeply unsettling. It's very natural for him to feel uncertain. So how was he supposed to make sense of their rejection? Uh, We're looking at Acts chapter 4 today, so let's see what God has to say. I mean, the first point on your handout over there is that Luke wants to highlight that their rejection was willful. So yesterday, Peter and John healed a lame man who leaped into the temple. Yesterday, Peter and John got locked up and arrested. And today is a time for questioning. Look down to verse 5. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. I mean, imagine the scene. It must have been pretty stuck. All the great leaders of the establishment, the rulers, the elders, the high priests and their family members, dressed in their robes, their tall mitre caps, each holding a scepter, standing around in a circle. And who's in the middle? Peter and John. The men with their robes and hats, questioning, confronting, scoffing. But you see, for all all the pomp and show that's going on, the evidence is very, very clear. Uh, Firstly, there was a really clear explanation of the miracle. So look to verse 7. By what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to the crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. You see, it was, there was a very clear explanation. By what name? Uh, by the name of the resurrected Jesus, whom they killed. But not only the explanation was clear, the evidence was clear as well. So look to verse 14. So they saw the man there, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with this man? For that a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You see, the evidence was clear in front of their eyes. And the, the lame man that we saw last week, the lame man who was lame from birth for 40 years, uh, he was leaping. And probably today as well, uh, he was still ecstatic from his healing. He was leaping in front of them, saying, hey, look at me. No longer lame, I can jump. Uh, there was clear evidence, clear explanation. And if you notice, um, this, this whole scene is cast as a retrial of Jesus' crucifixion. The rulers gathered here in this passage were the exact same group of leaders who put Jesus on trial before Pilate. Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 66, records first that the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes gathered together, and he also calls them the rulers. 
Uh, specifically, you have Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, who were recorded to be there. Look at verse 5. On the next day, there are rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem, with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. See, it's the same men. They gathered together with all the pomp and show. So what's going on? Uh, it's a retrial. There's a clear explanation and clear evidence. What's the conclusion? Look to verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. So let us recognize our wrongdoing, admit our mistake, and repent. Do they say that? No. They don't say that. Verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. You see, it's a willful, determined, culpable rejection that was going on. Their rejection was willful, inexcusable, indefensible. I mean, we might say that, hey, okay, I get it. Uh, They were in a really, really tricky position. Uh, They were the ones who led the people to kill Jesus. So admitting their mistake would be really embarrassing for them. I mean, it wasn't an easy decision. But think about it. Uh, These guys, uh, they are the leaders of Israel. It was their job, their responsibility. It was what they were paid for. Uh, They were the spiritual leaders of Israel. They studied the scriptures daily. And they were meant to point people to the Messiah. You see, and they saw the clear evidence, yet they chose to reject it. And Peter then defines their rejection for us in verse 12. And there is salvation in No one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Anyone or any religious establishment that puts itself in opposition to Jesus is rejecting him. There is only salvation in him. You know, sometimes we we think that um, a miracle or a clear explanation or logically well thought through explanations and arguments to our friends is sufficient to convince them. I mean, this passage clearly undermines this idea. There was an undeniable sign, there's clear explanation, clear evidence, total rejection. Why? Why does this happen? I think two reasons, uh, and that's pretty obvious. I mean, it's all about the reputation and the money. You see, admitting their mistake would really damage their reputation. They would lose influence over the people and lose the power over them. I mean, public opinion was what mattered. You think about it. The leaders, they would have loved to lock Peter and John up, but they couldn't do so. Look at verse 21. Because the crowds were praising God for the miracle, and they couldn't do anything to punish them. This isn't spiritual leadership. This is politics. And also, it matters for the bank balance. You see, these guys, they were the rulers of the temple. Uh, people who profited for people coming in and going out. And the temple was where forgiveness was supposed to be found. But if it's true, if salvation is found in no one else, 
apart from the name of Jesus, that would mean that the temple would no longer be needed. That would mean the loss of their paycheck. So admitting to, the rejection, admitting to their rejection would mean loss of reputation, influence, and a dwindling bank balance. So it's pretty clear. Their rejection was willful. It was all a power play. And it's worth pointing out as well that the rejection that's happening in our passage today, it's, it's really specific. Um, it's the men who crucified Jesus. And there's a certain culpability attached to them. But I want to suggest that it must be the case that people in religious establishments today should similarly be held accountable. Leaders who are responsible for providing spiritual leadership, leaders who are responsible for understanding the Bible rightly and explaining the truth, And so it should ring alarm bells if you hear church leaders teaching that you need to add to your salvation on top of Jesus. Or that you hear teaching that you do not need to repent in order to follow Jesus. Um, If they are more concerned about maintaining a reputation or keeping a steady flow of funds in their bank balance, it must be a willful rejection. There's a similar level of culpability going on. And I must say that this passage um, really serves as a good reminder for, for us here, for me specifically, to not willfully reject the truth. I mean, we're here at Common Garden, we're not here to save face or to build a reputation. Uh, we are neither here to build a bank balance. Uh, we're here to proclaim the ascended and risen Lord Jesus, uh, to understand what God is saying in his word and to explain it clearly both the good bits and the not-so-good bits. And so the shock in our passage today is that the people who were meant to be on the inside, uh, they willfully chose to be on the outside. And the question is why? Uh, Why is this all happening? And that's where we come to point to on your handout. Their rejection was fulfillment. We see that most clearly in verse 23, so please look down to verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted a voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Here the disciples, they quote from Psalms chapter 2. You can see that in the small subscript at the bottom of the Bibles, Psalms chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And Psalms 2 in the book of Psalms is a really key psalm, speaking about a future King David, um, who God would establish his throne. And he would be the anointed one who would be opposed by Gentiles, people, kings, and rulers. And it's a great psalm that the Jews used to draw confidence that God would defend them against the enemies. But the big shock here is that the Jews, 
the rulers of the Jews are placed in the categories against the Lord's anointed. If you notice in the psalm, there are four categories. Verse 25, the Gentiles, the peoples, the kings, and the rulers. The disciples go on to explain in verse 27 that the kings of the earth, that refers to Herod and Pontius Pilate, the two kings that crucified Jesus. The Gentiles refer to the Gentiles, and the peoples refer to the peoples of Israel. How about the last category, the rulers? Well, it has to be whoever Luke has been labeling as rulers in our passage today. Uh, the rulers, the Jewish rulers who oppose Jesus, who now oppose Peter and John. And as the disciples heard about how the rulers continued to oppose Peter and John, they placed themselves in the category of the enemies of God. Their rejection is the fulfillment of Psalms 2. And if you think about it, their rejection is very, very significant. The fact that their rejection is fulfillment is hugely significant. That means that the rejection wasn't unexpected, but rather to be expected. Instead of becoming a source of discouragement for Theophilus, it becomes a piece of evidence for him to be certain that Jesus is the Lord's anointed. And notice in the psalm that according to it, it is in the rejection of Jesus that enthrones him as king. It is as the enemies gather around Jesus, that is the thing that proves him to be king. Verse 27. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So it's not despite the rejection, but because of the rejection that Jesus is king. It was as if when the crown of thorns that was placed on his brow and as he was pressed in causing blood to run down his face in mockery and rejection of him, that moment was his crowning glory. When the rulers opposed Peter and John, that proved that Jesus is the Lord's anointed. <coughs> See, it's the inversion of the insiders becoming outsiders that is the conclusive evidence that Jesus is king. The rejection confirms Jesus as king. See, it totally inverts our expectations. I mean, if you are sticking to the apostles' witness, rejection shouldn't cause you to feel unsettled. It should affirm you that you are on the right side of the Lord's anointed. And if the, opposition is tr- if the opposite is true, assuming you don't face any rejection, uh, it's either that Jesus has returned or that you've crossed sides. Rejection did happen, it must happen, and it will happen. It is what enthrones the king. Uh, it will come from the Gentiles, it will come from the Jews, it will come from the kings and rulers, it will come from the religious establishments, it will come from anyone. And I want to say that if you're not a Christian with us uh, and you're here today, um, I, I hope this is not too frustrating to listen to you. But this is the truth, that all of us, all of us who were once rejecting Jesus, even our previous rebellion, confirmed him as king. Uh, We talked about the willful rejection of religious establishments. Uh, Rather than it becoming a source of discouragement, know that the religious establishment, the Jewish establishment, rejected the king. So be affirmed, even in religious establishments today, 
reject Jesus. And you see, this rejection has been happening throughout history. Uh, 1521, Martin Luther, the German reformer, in front of a very similar crowd at the Diet of Worms. A popes and priests dressed in their mitre hats with their long robes and their scepters are the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church accusing him. And you see, they were accusing him because Luther thought that forgiveness from God should not be sold for money. Uh, instead, forgiveness should be free and it should be by faith. And Luther, faced with the threat of excommunication, uh, here is what he says. Unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Peter and John, in verse 19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather to God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. You see, it happened in the first century. It happened during the Reformation. And it happens today. So the question I ask at the start is, how do we make sense of rejection? A rejection is and can be willful, but you see, the rejection also confirms Jesus as king. It is the fulfillment of scripture. A rejection by people or rejection by religious establishments. And so we've realized, if we realize this, what does it mean for us today? Uh, first thing, I want to encourage you guys to stick to the plain reading of the apostolic witness that we have here in front of us in the Bible. And as long as you stick with it, you're on the right side of Jesus. Even if that means rejection, from friends or family, or from the religious establishments. But secondly, and more importantly, I want to encourage you guys to speak boldly. Speak with confidence. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God is the one who's doing the miracles, but as for the disciples, they ask for boldness. You see, they don't ask for vindication from the persecution. They ask for boldness. So for us, speak boldly in the face of of rejection. I speak boldly because rejection can be willfully, is a willful rejection. Speak boldly because rejection is the fulfillment of Scripture. And the next time you experience rejection, that's David's prophecy being fulfilled as you speak. I'd be someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that means to speak boldly in the face of opposition. So let's go out from here and speak boldly about Jesus. Let me pray. The Lord Jesus says, You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. 
Father, we thank you that Jesus is your anointed. And we ask that we might grasp this truth more clearly. Please, will you fill us with your spirit so that we might be bold to speak in his name. And so we ask this in his name. Amen.